Today on Golden Girls Sports, we grab the baton and continue to race around a few more running references. And some other stuff, too. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead! The chicken... Larceny and Old Lace premiered on February 6th, 1988. It was written by Robert Bruce and Martin Weiss from a story by Jeffrey Farrow and Frederick Weiss and directed by Terry Hughes. Sophia has a new boyfriend, an old codger named Rocco, who talks like a real tough guy and who Dorothy isn't very fond of. I like your style. Right suit, right haircut, voice a little higher, you could pass as Frank Nitty. (laughs) What the hell are you talking about? little higher i think you got it you really knew frank nitty well sure frank nitty dutch schultz al capone rocco are you saying that you were in the mob i ran detroit the marathon he ran the detroit marathon later sophia opens up a bag that rocco had left at the house and makes a shocking discovery I'm telling you, there are thousands here. Oh, how could Rocco have this much money? I'm as confused as all of you. All I know is he had that satchel with him when he went to the bank this morning. Sophia, maybe you better tell us exactly what happened. When we got to the bank, he told me to keep the motor running. And five minutes later, he ran out at top speed. And did you ever think of asking him why he was running? No, the man is taking diuretics for a prostate problem. <laughs> His whole life is a 50-yard dash. (laughs) Sophia now has to decide if she wants to spend the rest of her life on the lam with a hood or at home with her daughter. When she declines his offer to run away, Rocco comes clean. He's not a gangster, just a big talker who was a short-order cook in New Jersey. The money in the suitcase wasn't stolen. It's his life savings he withdrew from the bank. He was trying to impress Sophia so that a classy lady like her would go out with a plug like him. The relationship, though, doesn't last, which is good because it means no one will have to file their fingerprints off. We mentioned Larceny and Old Lace a few episodes ago as the one that guest-starred legendary Hollywood icon Mickey Rooney. Rooney was 68 when he did his one episode of The Golden Girls, and he had spent the vast majority of those years in front of an audience, whether on stage or on camera. His entertainment career spanned 90 years altogether, before he died at the age of 93 in 2014. On September 23, 1920, the actor who would later become Mickey Rooney was born Joseph Yule in Brooklyn and was known to his family as Sonny. His early life resembled some of his early movies, with settings like burlesque shows and boarding houses. His mother was a dancer and his father was a stand-up comic, and by age two, Sonny was already performing on stage in vaudeville acts. After his parents' separation, Sonny's mother took him to Kansas City, then to Hollywood when producer Hal Roach was looking for kid actors. But she turned down Roach's standard offer and moved back. The Yules finally stayed in Hollywood after seven-year-old Sonny was given the title role of street-tough Mickey McGuire for a series of shorts based on the comic strip Tunerville Trolley. Sonny Yule had his name legally changed to Mickey McGuire, but was forced to change his last name again after a dispute with the comic's owner. Rooney did 78 Mickey Maguire shorts, and by 1936 was starring in feature films like Little Lord Fauntleroy, Captain's Courageous, 
and the devil is a sissy. The devil is a sissy? Seriously? All right. In 1937, Rooney began his series of wholesome Andy Hardy movies, which would make him the biggest box office star in America for a time. They're also where he met Judy Garland, and MGM became a very powerful studio off of their young backs. Suppose I went to New York and I, I got myself a job and, well, I, I could find out what life was all about on my own. Andrew Hardy, you can't go off to New York all by yourself. You're hardly more than a baby. Mom! Betsy will think that you mean that. and Well, you know that I'm 18. Of course you are, son. But your mother just can't realize it is 18 years since you were so tiny and soft and pink and I was washing in a basin. Oh, Mom, you shouldn't talk like that. It isn't respectable in front of a child like Betsy. Me, a child? Listen here, Andrew Hardy. My mother just bought me an evening dress that simply has no visible means of support. What is this world coming to? Rooney worked with a bunch of up-and-coming actresses in his heyday, and he married a bunch of them, too. He was hitched eight times, the first to Ava Gardner when he was just 21 and she 19 in 1942. They divorced after just a year. No matter who he was married to, Rooney was notorious for drinking, carousing, womanizing, gambling, and basically doing whatever he wanted all over the world and to hell with everybody else. But he was also a heck of an actor, too, capable of delivering a wide range of believable emotions and famously being able to cry on cue from an early age. He was nominated for four Oscars and shared a special Juvenile Academy Award in 1938. That and an honorary achievement for longevity in 1983 were his only wins. He did win an Emmy in 1981 for the TV movie Bill. Hardly a year went by without at least one Mickey Rooney movie in it from 1932 clear into the 21st century. Prolific doesn't even do him justice. But not all of them were winners. At some point, those boyish good looks weren't so good anymore. Before he knew it, he was playing an awful racist caricature in Breakfast at Tiffany's and doing how to stuff a wild bikini just so he could pay his alimony. In 1978, at 58 years old, Rooney made his Broadway debut in Sugar Babies, a burlesque-style musical that seemed suited to his particular talents. That kick-started a second, maybe third, maybe fourth win for his career. He cleaned up and started getting more roles as world-weary old dudes. He worked right up until his death with two films, Night at the Museum, The Secret of the Tomb, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, released posthumously. Rooney had 11 kids and sued one of his stepsons in 2012, alleging that he was withheld food and medicine and forced to sign over some of his wealth against his will. The case shined a light on the widespread plague of elder abuse in America, and Rooney appeared before a special Senate committee to testify to its horror. He was awarded almost $3 million when the case was settled in 2013. As for sports movies, the diminutive Rooney, who stood just over five feet tall, wasn't going to play Lou Gehrig or Jim Thorpe. But he did play a lot of jockeys or horse trainers or ex-jockeys that are still hanging around the stables. We talked about one of his most famous films in episode two of this podcast. In 1944's National Velvet, he played a washed-up jockey who trains Elizabeth Taylor's prize horse to run in a big steeplechase. Rooney and Garland starred in 1937 Thoroughbreds Don't Cry, in which he played a jockey. Much later in his life, he played a gambler in Lightning, The White Stallion, and a rancher in Lost Stallions, The Journey Home, which are apparently not the same movie. He also played a trainer in 1979's The Black Stallion, 
and that film's subsequent TV series, and was an angry band writer in the Twilight Zone episode, The Last Night of a Jockey. For his Golden Girls appearance, writer Robert Bruce and director Terry Hughes said Rooney was as difficult to wrangle on set as a wild Mustang. He went into a lot of old vaudeville shtick and ad-libbed throughout his tapings, something the show's stars and crew didn't abide by, legend or no legend. At one point, he even grabbed his crotch in a scene which uh, didn't make it into the final cut for some reason. I'm not sure if she knew it or not, but the Detroit Marathon Sophia mentions is a real thing, only it's called the Detroit Free Press Marathon. The annual 26.3-mile race runs from Detroit, Michigan to Windsor, Ontario and back via the Ambassador Bridge and the Detroit-Windsor Tunnel. The tunnel runs under the Detroit River, which makes the race the only underwater international marathon mile in the world. In 2009, over 19,000 runners participated in the marathon, and three men died, two after collapsing during the race and one after falling and hitting his head. This year's edition is the 40th in the run's history. Doug Curtis won it six straight times in the late 80s and early 90s, and Karen Blackford won it four times between 1979 and 1992. A marathon is a grueling test of human endurance. So how about something a little lighter, like jogging? Because that came up on the Golden Girls too. In season four's Love Me Tender, Dorothy goes out on a blind date that was set up by a computer. Eddie isn't exactly Burt Reynolds, but it's not like Dorothy has anything else to do. So they go out, and the next morning... Dorothy Spornak, are you just getting in? No, Blanche. I, I got up early and went jogging in a park with a really strict dress code. <laughs> we talked about this episode, too, back in season one. B. Arthur wasn't a fan of casting goofy-looking, high-talking actor John Fiedler as Eddie because she thought Dorothy should have a true attraction to a truly attractive man. Not only did the Eddie gag work, but Arthur got an Emmy nomination for the episode. John Fiedler, by the way, has a pretty familiar face and voice. After starring as one of the jurors in Sidney Lumet's tense screen adaptation of 12 Angry Men, Fiedler was on pretty much every TV show throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And starting from 1968, he was the voice of Piglet in Disney's Winnie the Pooh cartoons and he played the role until his death in 2005 at the age of 80. Jogging also came up in Season 3's Mixed Blessings, written by Christopher Lloyd. The episode opens with Rose and Blanche returning to the house from a spirited run, and Dorothy is there to lend her particular brand of quote-unquote support. Blanche, what are you doing? I'm panting, Dorothy. (laughs) Is the UPS man wearing his tight overalls again? Watch. Oh. oh, come on. Now, what is going on? Why are you guys on this sudden exercise kick? The Harlan twins have asked Rose and me to spend next weekend with them. Cruising in the Bahamas. Oh, so you're trying to lose weight. Oh, more than lose weight, Dorothy. We're giving ourselves a total makeover. I'm in charge of fitness. Blanche is in charge of beauty. Who's in charge of distracting the twins while the two of you have your swimsuits on? <laughs> Later in Mixed Blessings, Dorothy's son Michael arrives to tell his mom that he's getting married to Lorraine, his much older and much more black fiancé. Dorothy worries about the age difference, Lorraine's mother and aunts worry about the race difference, but the couple elopes anyway, and when they reveal that there's a baby on the way, the moms acquiesce and find a mutual peace. Lorraine was played by singer and actress Rosalind Cash, 
who also starred with Charlton Heston in The Omega Man, George C. Scott and Stacey Keach in The New Centurions, and in one of my all-time favorite movies, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Salutations, great Buckaroo Banzai. I am John M. Dunn from Planet 10. A common grave danger confronts both our worlds. After a bloody hey, reign of terror, what is that? the hated leader of our military past, the self-proclaimed Lord John Wolfen, a bloodthirsty butcher as evil as your Hitler, oh, wow. was overthrown by freedom-loving forces, tried and condemned along with several hundred of his followers to spend eternity in the formless void of the eighth dimension. Did you tell Penny the buck was looking for? I looked in her room, she wasn't there. Who's Penny? Well, where is she? Well, everybody please shut up so I can hear the rest of this thing. She started her TV career on General Hospital in 1963 and worked steadily for years with recurring roles on 30-something, A Different World, and Rock. Rosalind Cash died of cancer in 1995. It's incredibly common now, but not long ago, getting caught on the street jogging would have made people look at you as if you were an escaped alien invader from the 8th dimension. The true origin and creator of jogging, or just running now, is up for debate. Sure, you can go back to the ancient Greek messenger Philippides and his run to Athens. But Sarah Lasko of The Atlantic wrote in 2014 that the true father of the activity was a British man named Jerry Mars who studied the habits of bus drivers and conductors in London. The sedentary drivers had higher frequencies and more fatal cases of heart attacks and heart disease than did the more active conductors. Morris applied his results and started lightly jogging around Hampstead Heath Park in the 60s to get some extra exercise in, despite the curious eyes of onlookers. Morris swam or jogged for 30 minutes a day for years and lived to be 99 years old. Meanwhile, Time Magazine pinned jogging on Dwight Eisenhower. No, Ike wasn't running laps around the White House. But in 1955, the president had a moderate heart attack while on vacation. Doctors who had advised exercise as a way to combat America's growing unhealthiness suddenly got a tremendous boost in PR. Middle-aged men, in particular, started getting interested in their health and began to run as a cheap, easy way to not end up in the hospital. And then there's Bill Bowerman a running coach at the University of Oregon who found jogging during a trip to New Zealand in 1962, where he met a coach named Arthur Lydiard. When he returned to the States, Bowerman wrote a short pamphlet called The Jogger's Manual, and then a full book on the subject in 1967. The first printing of Jogging, the book, sold a million copies, and a craze was born. Or was it? Now, neighborhoods are buzzing with runners pounding the pavement at all hours of the day and night. But back in the 60s and early 70s, it was still pretty rare to see someone just go running by for the heck of it. In fact, it wasn't unusual for you to get stopped by the police if they saw you jogging. Senator Strom Thurmond was nabbed for jogging in 1968, as was a Hartford man named Dick Courtier, who had to go to court to fight a ticket for, quote, illegal use of a highway by a pedestrian. As celebrities started running for fitness, more and more regular folks started taking notice. Bill Bowerman, who had been designing and making custom shoes for his track team since the 50s, started a company with a former student of his importing running shoes from Japan. Their first shoe, the Cortez, was based on Bowerman's designs and sold very well in the late 60s thanks to his book on jogging 
and its comfort level for long-distance running on roads. Soon, Bowerman and his partner Phil Knight's company started manufacturing their own shoes, and Nike was off and running. The girls had another track coach on their mind in Season 5's All Bets Are Off, written by Eugene B. Stein. The episode opens with Blanche announcing her latest date and segues into Dorothy talking herself out of one. And of course, Sophia comes in to drop the hammer. His name is Donald Parker Everett. He's the new curator at the museum. Oh, Blanche. Honey, it's not a good idea to go out with someone you work with. Oh, come on, Dorothy. I've heard you talk about Ted, the track coach, how sexy and virile he is. Just talk. I wouldn't dream of going after him. Even if she did, he'd easily outrun her. (laughs) We're going to talk a lot about All Bets Are Off in a few weeks because the plot revolves around horse racing and Dorothy's gambling addiction. Spoiler alert. I don't think she ever went out with Ted the track coach. Or how about another long, grueling physical test of endurance? Something like the Tour de France, which was used as a punchline on the Golden Girls also. In season seven's The Case of the Libertine Bell, written by Tom Whedon and directed by Lex Paceris, the girls attend a murder mystery weekend Blanche has organized to try and get a promotion at work. Dorothy is the first to figure out the culprits, and Rose is very impressed with her detective skills. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The who, how, and what. Dorothy, that was a real tour de France. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, Rose. The Case of the Libertine Bell is a veritable treasure trove of recognizable guest stars, most of which are on Fox's 24. Todd Sussman, who played fake detective Spade Marlowe, has a credits list dating back to the 70s. He might be best known, but not seen, as the ubiquitous PA announcer on MASH. He's also been on Barney Miller, Newhart, Empty Nest, Orange is the New Black, and about a thousand shows you've never heard of. Tony Plana, who played real, or maybe fake detective Alvarez, has been equally as prolific, even though he started on TV in the late 70s. He was Manny the Super on a season two episode of Seinfeld, Omar on 24, and has been seen on no less than four different shows in 2017 alone. Lethal Weapon, The Fosters, Madam Secretary, and most recently, Marvel's The Punisher on Netflix. Zach Grenier, who played Hotel Detective Vaxi, no doubt named for Golden Girls writer-producer Richard Vaxi, whose name I've been mispronouncing this whole time, played David Lee on The Good Wife, and has also been on Deadwood, Touching Evil, 24, and six episodes of Law & Order, each as a different character. Leland Orser, who played the maitre d', who was not a waiter, was also on 24, as well as 60-plus episodes of ER as Dr. Lucien Dubenko, on top of Married with Children, The Pretender, and now Ray Donovan. True Golden Girls fans will recognize Richard Rote, who played Kendall Nesbitt here as Al Beatty, man Rose slept with and may have killed in season one's A Bed of Roses. Rote first made his mark on soap opera The Doctors in the early 60s as Dr. Jerry Chandler, but has over 120 credits since then. He was on Hill Street Blues, Dynasty, Night Court, and, you guessed it, 24. Phew, that was an ordeal. But not nearly as much as the Tour de France, that 21-stage, 3-week, 2,200-mile beast that the best cyclists in the world have competed in for over a century. The first tour was run in 1903, 
and was organized by newspaper reporter Gio Lefebvre, who was looking to goose the circulation of his paper, La Auto. Sixty riders took part in that first race, which was only six stages and 1,500 miles long. But by the end of it, only 23 men were still going. The roads were unpaved, the bikes were primitive, there was no safety equipment, and the rules prevented competitors from getting any help, forcing them to carry spare tires and tubes with them. The good news is that they were able to chug wine while they were plugging along. The first winner was Maurice Garin, a 32-year-old chimney sweep, who took home the 20,000 franc first prize. By the time he crossed the finish line, his lead had ballooned to three hours over second place finisher Lucien Potier, which is still a tour record for margin of victory. Tour de France was obviously a hit and continues on to this day. The famous yellow jersey, denoting the leader in the race's general classification, was added in 1919. Englishman Chris Froome and his Team Sky won over 700,000 euros thanks to his overall victory in the 2017 Tour. While individual riders have been replaced by national teams, cheating and scandals remain constant. Garin raced in the second Tour also, where he was stopped in one town and beaten up by supporters of a rival rider. Spectators could spray tacks and broken glass across the roads to cause havoc. Riders were also known to hitch rides on passing cars, which Garin himself was disqualified for in one race. The cheating has gotten a little bit more complex since then, most famously resulting in American Lance Armstrong having his record seven Tour de France victories stripped from him in 2012 due to illegal doping. But let's get back to exercise before we go. In season seven's Hey Look Me Over, Blanche is reading and barely paying attention to Rose as she attends to an old exercise bike she's had for a long time and plans to put into storage. That leads Blanche to uh, misunderstanding what her friend said. What do you think, Blanche? Am I through with my cycle? Well, I'd say menopause is a pretty good guess. <laughs> You're about as puffy as the Pillsbury Doughboy. <laughs> I was talking about my exercise. Hey, Look Me Over was the first episode of the show's final season. It was directed by Lex Passaris and written by Mitchell Hurwitz, who would go on to create and executive produce the seminal sitcom Arrested Development over a decade later. Hurwitz, ironically enough for us today, started out on the Golden Girls as a runner, which is just a nice way of saying he got coffee for the stars. But the FaceTime helped get his scripts read, and before you know it, he wrote seven Golden Girls episodes and was a producer on the show for its entire final season. Although Hurwitz learned a lot about TV on the Golden Girls, he's humble about his place in the show's history. He told The Guardian in 2013 that, quote, I take very little credit for all that. I was just lucky enough to be 24 and given a job on that show, end quote. He was also a writer and supervising producer on The Golden Palace, then on The John Larroquette Show, then a few other short-lived series before bringing the Bluth family to life. And thank God he did. Like a lot of people, Rose doesn't know what to do with an exercise bike that's now collecting dust. In fact, there's a chance some of America's founders were using dormant stationary exercise machines as clothes hangers, just like you or I might do today. The earliest instance of an exercise bike-like contraption was the Gymnasticon, which was invented in 1796 by Francis Lowndes. Lowndes was an early proponent of using electricity in medical procedures to cure injuries and diseases. I am not sure if that worked or not, but he also invented the Gymnasticon as a way to exercise joints and help patients with ailments like quote-unquote gout, 
palsy and rheumatism, among others. It didn't look like a regular stationary bike. It was a tall, boxy thing with two big wheels and foot pedals and cranks and belts and all kinds of stuff. Think of it as Ben Franklin's Bowflex. Indoor bicycles started popping up in the 19th century, when people could put their actual bikes on rollers and use them inside the house. But it was still pretty rare, and in at least one report from 1897 was seen as, quote, curious domestic use of the bicycle, end quote. By the turn of the century, there were roller bike competitions where a giant meter would track who could pedal a mile the fastest. Eventually, dedicated pedaling machines that sort of resembled bikes became more and more common. There was even one in the gymnastics room on the Titanic, which means it's been at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean since 1912. It took a few decades, but by the 1960s, those machines started looking like the exercise bikes we see today, albeit without the computers and screens and docks for your iPad. Of course, today we call riding an exercise bike spinning. Chances are there's a spin class going on in a very fashionable boutique in your neighborhood right now. Spinning was started by Johnny Goldberg, fitness instructor from South Africa who moved to California and spent a decade designing a specialized program for stationary bikes that consisted of, quote, basic cycling movements, motivational coaching techniques, breathing awareness, and heart rate training, end quote. From one location in Santa Monica in 1989, Johnny G, as he was known, started a sweaty takeover of Earth. There were 40,000 spin instructors worldwide by 2000, and Goldberg says he trained a thousand new teachers a month at that time. A key component, or maybe cliche, of the spin class is an instructor who's part teacher, part drill sergeant, and part cheerleader. For about 40 minutes, you feel the music, hear the instructor's motivational directives, and pedal like a lunatic. Becoming a spin trainer isn't easy, and it's a pretty cutthroat business. After establishing your credit as a class participant, it could take months of trials and training to get a spot in a spin studio. And it's not all about the biking either. You also need to have a hook or a brand that will make people fall in love with you and keep them coming back for more. Do a Google search on spin class and cult just to see how close people can get to their instructors. I guess living your life with the ups and downs of athletes isn't the exclusive domain of team sports. The Golden Girls is timeless but it's also very representative of the decade in which it was made. Pastimes like jogging or exercise bikes might not have started in the 80s, but they definitely gained widespread popularity during that time. And as we'll see later in this season, the home workout crazes that really screamed 80s would hit the Golden Girls in the form of jazzercise, aerobics, and some highly impractical sportswear. But next time on Golden Girls Sports, we climb atop a human pyramid and take an extended look at the cheerleading career of Blanche Devereaux. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening. <laughs>